0: Welcome to Business Line's State of the Economy podcast, where you will find insight, analysis and the story behind the numbers.
1: Hello and welcome to the State of the Economy podcast. I'm Jyoti Datta. The Global Climate Summit, COP28 as we know it, has just concluded in Dubai and countries have managed a hard bargain declaration on green commitments that they will now need to implement. But this summit has a first That is worth a mention for the first time health for instance was on the agenda of a climate summit now we've seen air pollution smog and floods pretty much at our doorsteps but to explain to us the cascading impact of climate on health we have with us today dr srinath reddy cardiologist and founder and past president of the public health foundation of india thank you doctor for speaking to us
0: happy to connect
1: Doc, you were at the COP28 session and in the build-up to it, we saw various agencies, including the World Health Organization, tell us that 2023 has seen an alarming surge in climate related wildfires, heat waves, agricultural losses, air pollution. I mean, it's a long list. Could you give us a sense of how these events, climate events, impact our health?
0: One of the very important elements of the climate discussion is the impact on human health. And of course on animal health, plant health, and therefore on planetary Mm -hmm. health overall. But human health has long remained a subject of relative neglect in the global climate change discourse, despite the overwhelming impact on human health. But I think given the calamities that we have witnessed over the recent years and the very visible impact on human health, not only through extreme weather events, but also greater vulnerability to a number of infectious and non-infectious diseases, and the impact as well on nutrition through impact on food systems. All of these have roused the global consciousness of the health impact of climate change. And ultimately, if people have to get engaged in the climate change discussion, and not just discuss climate change as an abstract issue and feel the impact on their daily lives and on the health of their own bodies and that of their family members, we have to bring the health discussion very much into the center stage. That is how we should influence the public and through them, the policymakers. And I'm glad that COP28 took a step in the right direction by bringing attention to health and as the WHO Director General said, health is indeed at the center of the entire climate change discourse, or at least it should be.
1: You know, you brought in various points there, whether it's nutrition and, uh, you know, health. So just looking at each of as uh, different uh, compartments, we've seen, for instance, health waves, air pollution and floods in India. So how would you advise a public health system to be prepared for such emergencies?
0: Well, I think... The important element is to build climate smart and climate resilient health systems. Uh, We know the various impacts that are likely to occur. What we see almost immediately are the impact of excessive heat during summers and extreme weather events year around. And therefore we ought to really ensure that we can meet the consequences of that by creating uh, what we call heat adaptation plans, particularly for urban areas, but even rural areas are getting impacted. And we know outdoor workers, whether they're daily wage laborers in the construction industry in the cities, or whether they're agricultural workers in the uh, farmlands of rural India, they're going to get greatly impacted by the rising heat. So one of the things is that we must ensure that there are heat adaptation plans where we can ensure not only the construction material of buildings altered, ventilation is ensured, but water supply, heat shelters in urban areas, all of these are available. And even for agricultural workers, some sort of heat protection, staggered working hours, all of these are going to be important in terms of protecting them from the impact of heat. At the same time, we know that we are going to see a huge surge in vector bone diseases, because as humans will become listless in the heat, uh, mosquitoes will actually become athletic because they breed more in warmer climates and they will start spreading faster and farther and climbing to higher heights. And therefore diseases like uh, dengue, malaria, chikungunya, all of these are going to become much more rampant and will be seen in areas where they were previously not very prominent, and they'll be seen for longer periods of the year uh, because the mosquito breeding cycle extends. And therefore, we have to prepare for vector-borne diseases. And therefore, urban planning becomes very important because freshwater-breeding mosquitoes, which are responsible for diseases like uh, dengue and chikungunya, will have to be countered alongside uh, planning for heat adaptation in urban areas. So urban health becomes an important element Uh, in our future preparation. At the same time, waterborne diseases will increase. Uh, Diseases like cholera, typhoid, all of these also will start increasing much more now and um, many other waterborne diseases as well. So we are going to be seeing a a requirement of being quite alert uh, to the emergence of these diseases and managing them by way of clean water supply and ensuring that uh, we will not have a surge of some of these diseases during extreme weather events when there's going to be a lot of water contamination because of flooding. At the same time, we must recognize that there will be impacts also on mental health as well as non-communicable diseases. We are going to see the impact of air pollution exacerbated because as the carbon dome descends closer to the Earth's surface, the pollutants get trapped near the surface, they do not rise much, and they are more likely to enter the body and cause a lot of problem because of the various pollutants that are there in the polluted air. Then we'll also see uh, cancers rising, we'll see particularly cardiovascular disease rising because of the heat effect as well as the water stress. Uh, We'll see uh, things like heat exhaustion and heat stroke, but we'll also see circulatory failure a large number of people may actually become susceptible to acute strokes or brain attacks because of the blood becomes thick and there is a greater likelihood of uh, strokes, greater likelihood of heart attacks. Uh, there is an impact on kidney function, all because of the heat and water stress in particular. And therefore, we are going to be seeing non-communicable diseases as well. Mental health is going to suffer because of a lot of fear, anxiety, anxiety, worry about what's going to happen, as well as the extreme weather events, displacement, migration, all of these are going to be impacting on mental health. And uh, now we also know from studies that there is likely to be a greater tendency towards conflict. Uh, The intra-group conflict, the risk rises by 2.4%, whereas the inter-group conflict, the risk grows up by 11.3%. And particularly when people are not only going to be fretting under the hot weather, but also because they're going to be fighting for clean water, people will be pushed into climate migration, all the conflict situations also will get aggravated. So we are going to be seeing multiple impacts on health. At the same time, we are going to be seeing the health systems under great stress. When we find that extreme weather events like floods or um, other type of disruptions that occur because of climate change, even wildfires, all of these are going to be causing problems in terms of transportation. The infrastructure of uh, health facilities may be uh, affected. The uh, mobility of personnel and of emergency transport will be affected. And therefore, health services are likely to be greatly affected. So what we really require to see is that we build climate resilient as well as climate smart health systems. And when I say climate smart, it also means that our health systems are currently contributing also to greenhouse gas emissions uh, by way of not only energy consumption in the healthcare facilities, but also the way we use our hospital laundries, the kind of anesthetic gases we use. All of these also contribute a fair amount, about 30% of the health system healthcare system related greenhouse gas com- uh, emissions come from that infrastructure and energy utilization in that space but 70% come from the supply chain so if you can actually also have energy conserving infrastructure at the same time influence the entire supply chain down the line to have green procurement you can really make the health system itself uh, important com- contributor to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And that's an important contribution that we should make. And particularly if we strengthen primary care services, primary healthcare services, then we know that we are bringing in healthcare to home or closer to home. You can do uh, disease prevention, you can have early detection and effective management so that many people do not have to travel long distances to large hospitals in cities. So that way, you're reducing the hospital infrastructure need. Uh, at the same time, you're also preventing the emissions coming in from long-distance commuting and, of course, improving people's health in the process because primary care is really uh, the best way of investing in people's health and preventing disease or preventing severe disease. So that's one way of doing it. And therefore, we by bringing in even digital technologies, which are promoting telehealth services, which enable people to get treated at home or very close to home we can actually influence climate change as well so the health system becomes a very important responder to climate change as well as an important contributor to reducing the overall process of climate change
1: i i think that's that's a huge case for uh, you know uh, primary healthcare to be strengthened and as you pointed out the need for green norms in procurement and to ensure that the supply chain also keeps uh, its uh, emissions down, we do hope that people involved with all of this are tuning into your conversation, Doctor. One and and you did mention, you know, the increase of malaria, chikungunya, all of that with warmer climates uh, now being seen in various regions, which were otherwise cold countries. So again, authorities, uh, you know, would be looking at all of that. But one um, area that probably doesn't get much attention in the health context is the impact of climate on um, agriculture and nutrition. And that is something which is, again, alarming, as you pointed out in earlier conversations. If you could just, um, you know, shine a light on that.
0: Indeed, that becomes very, very important because we know fully well that agriculture is impacted in terms of both quantity and quality of the crops produced there is the impact of heat stress, there is the impact of water stress, and there is the impact of carbon dioxide levels rising in the atmosphere. And there is, of course, the impact of deforestation, which is now happening because of a variety of reasons and which impacts the agricultural production, but also releases viruses and vectors to trigger off pandemics. So there are many things that are under-related. If you look at Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, we are already growing our uh, staples like uh, rice and wheat at the highest level of temperature tolerance. So even a further one degree centigrade rise in that temperature has been projected to result in a 10% reduction in the yield of staples. And it is not just that we are going to be seeing quantity of food is going to be reduced, the quality of crops also is going to be substantially reduced. Uh, Nutrient-rich crops are much more uh, susceptible to droughts, pests, diseases, and temperature fluctuations, and we would know that we will have crops which are going to be deficient in zinc, iron, and protein. It has been estimated by the Data Sciences Center of the Columbia University, that even uh, by 2050, if the current progression of global warming continues, in India, which is very vulnerable, by 2050, there'll be 49.6 million new zinc-deficient persons. There'll be 38.2 million new protein-deficient persons. And there'll be 106.1 million children and 396 million women who would become iron deficient. We also know that fruit and vegetables will ripen and rot early. We also know that the fish yield would be reduced uh, because of coastal flooding and also the changes in the water temperature. And the nature of our fish production will be greatly impacted. And we are already seeing that happening Uh, For example, we know that since 1996, the marine fish catch has fallen at an annual rate of 1.22 metric tons per year. So if we are really looking at nutrition, both in quantity and quality, that's going to suffer. I mean, we keep telling people that you must have more fruit and vegetables and fish in order to protect your heart and blood vessels. Now, they're not going to be available. But even staples are not going to be available in enough quantity, and their nutrient composition will be greatly decreased. So we must attend to that as well. And therefore we need more climate resilient crops, uh, which are going to be produced, uh, like for example, millets, chickpeas and so on. Uh, They are much more climate uh, resilient. But it's also important for us to ensure that we reduce the impact of agriculture and food systems on climate change itself. Uh, We need to ensure that we have, I mean, less of deforestation because of uh, agriculture, and particularly our livestock breeding, which releases a lot of greenhouse gases and methane, in particular, into the environment, that is reduced so that we do not harm the environment through our agricultural practices. Climate smart and climate resilient health systems, climate smart and climate resilient food systems, both are absolutely necessary. But again, let me ask another, uh, raise another point. In our food and agriculture systems, we also ought to reprioritize. Why are we wasting 3.4 million hectares of arable land globally on producing a water intensive, pesticide intensive, health-harming crop like tobacco, which also leads to a huge amount of deforestation because curing of raw tobacco requires burning of wood and packaging of tobacco products in cigarettes and packages also consumes a lot of paper. So it's an environmental hazard as well. So should we not be diverting our crop production from tobacco to nutrient crops? Similarly, why are we wasting millions of gallons of water on... uh, sugar-sweetened beverages, which are depriving people of water during increasing periods of water scarcity, at the same time causing harmful health consequences in terms of diabetes and obesity and cardiovascular disease? And why are we actually diverting some of our fresh farm produce into ultra-processed foods, which are factory-produced and require long supply chains for distribution? So these are the kind of questions we also ought to be asking in the context of climate change. Uh, We definitely need to protect ourselves in terms of the health consequences as well as the nutrition consequences. But we can be very proactive in ensuring that our food systems and health systems also become uh, climate smart and climate resilient.
1: Very, very pertinent questions there uh, to be asked of the food industry as well. Uh, Doctor, you did mention, and this is my final question to you, you did mention deforestation and, uh, you know, we, we've seen, we're just coming out of COVID if we're really out of it in that sense. And the scientific community wants a more pandemic. So well, the the linkages between this habitat erosion, migration, and zoonotic uh, diseases, could you, could you explain what we need to watch out for there?
0: Yes, because once we look at uh, deforestation as an important element of climate change, we also recognize that deforestation is bringing in uh, previously confined viruses and vectors into the veterinary population that is there outside of the forests, as well as into the human habitat. That veterinary population may be free-living or captive population like pets and so on, or, or uh, captive-bred uh, animals and poultry. So there is a Uh, conveyor belt that's now established for transmission of these microbes from forest dwelling animals into human bodies. Uh, At the same time, climate change is also resulting in increasing heat and extreme weather events that leads to migration of people and animals as climate refugees. And when you start having those movements, people will carry microbes into new territory or acquire microbes from the new territory where they're entering. So transmission of microbial infections is going to increase and that can trigger off epidemics and pandemics. So these are some of the important elements that we ought to look at uh, alongside uh, our immediate impact on climate change, uh, on uh, health and uh, nutrition, how even uh, epidemics and pandemics are linked both by common causes as well as by the impact of the changes of climate change resulting in human and animal mobility.
1: Right. Very thought-provoking conversation, Doctor. With that, I bring this conversation to a close. From the Business Line team and myself, thank you so much for your time and insights.
0: Most welcome and happy to converse with uh, you and through you with your listeners.
1: Thank you so much, Doctor.